Welcome to the Max Muth Theater and Performance Podcast, a podcast about theater and performance in New York City beyond Broadway. Enjoy the show. Let's start with introductions. Jose. Hello, I'm Jose from Stage Buddy. Deep. Hi, I'm Deep from American Theater Magazine. And I'm Lindsay from Max Moo. We're here to talk about things we've seen recently and what we thought about them. And we're starting with Jose. First up, we Jose have... Jose has a play. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that would be creepy. I don't. First up, we have The Light Years, which was is, it's a show by the Debate Society playing at Playwrights Horizons. This show is kind of a history... Not kind of. It is a history play that takes place... It starts in uh, the late 19th century when they're planning the World Fair in Chicago, right? Yeah, I'm really bad with geography right now for some reason. Uh, They're planning the World's Fair in Chicago and there's this crazy visionary called Steele McKay who has this idea to build like the largest ever theater because he wants to have a show about Columbus discovering America. So in his version of this, at some point in the show, there would be like three actual like sailboats. Are, were they called sailboats? I don't think they were called Ships. sailboats. Ships. Yeah. yeah. I'm bad also with boats and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many weird things you're bad about. Let's talk about. Yeah, that. like words. Like you know, like, like if it's words. like yeah, like if it's something like as a professional writer. <laughs> well, I mean, like words about. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the the theater was supposed to fit up. Over like 10,000. 12,000 yeah, people. 12, yeah, 12,000 people, which is like bonkers. Can you imagine being in the balcony for that? Yeah, and then that's like the size of a stadium. Like you can't see anything from that. Right, and they didn't point. even have screens. Mm-hmm. But this is where the title of the show comes from. One of the uh, people working in the theater is this really expert electrician who's designing all the lighting systems for the for the theater. And they're working on this like crazy beautiful like chandelier kind of thing called the moon cart which is supposed to be as beautiful and as uh, luminous as the moon so then the play is about the the construction of this theater then it jumps ahead years into the future to the next world's fair in chicago where a family moves into the house that was previously occupied by this electrician and also uh there's um narration telling us about the stars and Columbus and the moon. So it's like three different layers of storytelling that all are combined in this like Russian doll. I mean, like Russian dolls are like so in vogue right now, like Russian doll structure uh, that made for this. The only way that I could find how to describe this show, which is something that I, as a writer, I try never to do with theater but I found it extremely cinematic. I felt that it was it was kind of like watching a movie being made. Like I could see in my brain, like in my mind, I could see how if someone was shooting this play, how they would edit it and then project it. It also, I mean, it also helped my crazy fantasy that there's to the side, there's a screen that has the changing years and it tells us what, place and what year we're in that looks exactly like the title cards from silent films so like the whole idea of like light and what light can create and the characters that manifest from light was like 
it's like being at the movies. And it also made me think a lot about Hugo, both the book and the movie um, by Martin Scorsese and the book. I forgot who wrote the book. Uh, but anyway, which was also about like this inventor who was trying to regain his past, I guess, because it was so painful and he wanted to to create beauty again. So I actually really loved this show. Um, I had this like moment after I left the theater and, you know, like Playwrights Horizons is right on 42nd Street. So we're like a block away from like hell, for lack of better term. But leaving the theater after watching the, the light years for the very first time in my life, I found myself to be like completely enamored with the lights of Times Square. And I found them so beautiful. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, like someone like a hundred years ago created like the very first like light bulb and we wouldn't have all of this like insanity that we don't like if it wasn't for some crazy visionary from all that time ago what did you think deep uh i was less generous to it than jose was mainly because i it made i was very impatient with it i think after a while like it was just it was one of those one of those plays that was i felt was cutesy for the sake of being cutesy and whimsical for the sake of being whimsical when I feel like it that it kind of took away from the main story because the it's not so the story isn't so much about Steele McKay the actor inventor who actually in the play and I, I was reading more about him in the playbill and it gave me some more context I kind of wished were, were incorporated into the show itself you know, Steele McKay invented the folding theater seat and invented the free playbill in the theater. Like, all of these little things that were that we take for granted, and he it came from this one dude, and we don't know about it until we read it in the playbill. But the main story are, is about this electrician and his very endearing, very cute wife, <laughs> who's, a, who's a modern woman who, who loves to ride bicycles, and then... Should I spoil this point for people or spoiler coming? Yes, go spoiler ahead. Spoiler coming. <laughs> and she tragically dies from touching one of the moon cart. And so the story then becomes about him trying to get over her death and then and then mysteriously 30 years later a woman moves into into the apartment that looks like his dead wife. And so we have that little resonance to it. And the acting was great. The actress playing uh, Aya Cash. Aya Cash, awesome. she was like, she just really grounded this character because I feel like in lesser hands, this character would have been like this manic pixie, you know, girl who is just there to provide support while this man does great things and, and her job is just to go, oh my God, that's so amazing. It, I, I'm sorry. I have, I, I, I think I'm getting old and cynical. I have no clue about this kind of shit anymore. <laughs> oh, I am even less generous than you actually deep. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just, uh, I will say the li- the lighting effects were fantastic. I mean, just the uh, just like the way that they made like whenever the electrician got electrocuted, like there are these sparks, and you you wonder, wait, how do they do that? Are they really shocking the actors, or like how do you do that on stage? Like how do you see how do you render accidents? And just to do like the way Ann Kaufman directed it when they were doing the scene changes, like how seamlessly they did it to like like they they. There's someone talking in the foreground, but there's all this, this action going on in the background. But then, like you're, but you're able to like see both at the same time, and that was without being distracted by either one. So that was really interesting to me. But I think this play had is one. It was one of those times where I don't think it knew what what it wanted to be. I th- 
And I loved Jacuzzi, like the last um, debate society show at Ars Nova. I just thought that was really cynical and brilliant. But this one, like on one hand, they wanted it to be about this big event. On this, this the other hand, they wanted it to be about like the uh, the beginnings of mo- the modern theater and electrical light. And then and then o- over it is all the all this cutesy little elements that didn't really add much to the story, in my opinion. So I've been a subscriber at Playwrights Horizons for at least five years, maybe longer. And I've seen tons and tons of productions there. And the one unifying factor of all the productions is great detail and resources put into the scenery and the effects and all the design elements of the play. So much so that... I kind of think of it as a joke. Like as soon as the sort of automated stagecraft starts shifting around in every single show, I can't prevent myself from audibly laughing because it is (laughs) like they have brought, you know, these very fancy, very expensive elements to a very small stage. And on the one hand, I appreciate that. And on the other hand, what it appears to me that Playwrights Horizons and the Debate Society have done in this instance is made a play about their own enamor- being enamored with the box where performance takes place. And while that stuff is cool, the meat of the plays that I've been seeing at Playwrights Horizons have become more and more boring and dull. And I walked out of this performance after years of being a subscriber and said to my friends who I share a subscription with, let's not renew here anymore. I'm done Mm. with this. This is a beautiful production. It is cast incredibly well. I love Aya Cash. I think she's amazing. And the show she has called You're the Worst on FXX is fantastic. If you haven't seen it, do check Ah. it out. But there's just not enough interesting play production going on at this theater anymore and i personally thought this play was so boring there's just not there any there there it was just like like a self-indulgent congratulatory look at how wonderful it is to make theater and all the great things that we invented like put ourselves in the back theater people exactly great work now please your bus (laughs) yeah but (laughs) no but isn't like I, i i ran into into a friend at that show and I actually went to see this show on Oscar night. I skipped the I skipped watching the Oscars, which is something that I traditionally do, but I was like, fuck this, I wanna go see this show. And so everything that you're saying, I can totally see. Like you're like, you know, why why would you wanna pat yourselves on the back? But yet here we are, three people sitting on a Sunday talking about why we love theater. So just to see that, just to see a sense of like Probably what it made me realize was I know that all of us are going through like really like dark times and often we're like, why am I not, you know, like at a rally or why, why am I not like helping a refugee? Why am I sitting at the theater? And this show, if anything, made me remember why I love going to the theater and why there's a sense of. So anyway, my I, I ran into my friend and when we were walking out, he was like, what was that show about? And then he was like, no, wait, 
it was about finding a sense of wonder, right? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. And if anything, I can see why it was precious, it was cutesy, it was quirky, it was like as if a Wes Anderson movie, you know, like just like imploded all over. It reminded me of so many other movie, uh, it had so many movie references, like, you know, Steel McKay kind of reminded me of a character from Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. The red curtain when we walk in, it's like straight out of a musical. It had all these things that I understand as a whole might not be the, you know, the most original of texts, but together they, they just put me on it, like in a very good place, in a very good mood. It was, I am like the least romantic person I know. It takes a lot to move me, but I left this show like almost, almost misty eyed. Dang. Yeah. And I had the exact opposite reaction, which is like, in these times of turmoil, I need my theater to give me something more than twee. There, I just felt like there was almost no character development, almost no, no plot, yeah. and just nothing to spark my interest in any way. I would have rather spent my time at a protest than that one. So anyway, this is us having different opinions, which is why we do this podcast. And I only think like it's because like we're cynical, but I think it's... If you if you want to make a show about I, I I completely understand your point, Jose, about it being about wonder and about these characters just like seeing things for the for the first time and it's so amazing to them. That is great. At the same time, I don't like what I don't care to watch that. I don't care <laughs> watching other people be be, you know, surprised and delighted. Like as an audience member, I want to feel that way too. And so you need to give me something. And at the end I kinda got there just a little bit, but I need it with the with the light installation at the end but I needed it to be more like I needed it to be like fucking Sunday in the park with George like lights coming onto my face like I just needed <laughs> to feel something if if I if I'm going to justify my time and also it started 20 minutes late and I was just oh really Ooh. Ooh. okay the more is deep Okay, The Moors is by Jen Silverman. It's currently at Playwrights Realm. And so fun so fun story. When I was when I was a teenager, I really got into Victorian literature. <laughs> so, you know, Jane Austen, the Brontes, Rebecca, like all of those like Victorian gothic, <laughs> you know, poor girl comes to live in a rich house and falls in love with the master, but he has a dark secret, like his wife is hidden in the attic. Oh my god, that 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 was I love that shit. So when uh, when I was talking to player Jen Silverman and she was writing this play about that was set in Victorian times, set on the moors at Victorian Gothic, I was like, oh my god, I have to go see this play. And you think it's so you come in and you think it's gonna be that kind of play about you know oh a governess is coming into this house and she's been writing love letters to the master of the house and they're gonna have a romance and she thinks she's gonna have a romance, but it turns out. Like, the master of the house is actually the one hidden in the attic, and she actually falls in love with the mistress of the house. And so it then becomes a meditation on the roles of women and the restrictions placed on women and how these women, because it's, it's a house of all women aside from the man who never shows up, and he's hidden in the attic. And it's a house of four women plus a dog. And... It's all of them like trying to trying in their own way to fight against the restrictions that society has placed on them, because there's there's okay. Oh, I was just sorry. Oh. And the Moorhen. And the Moorhen. Sorry. Yes. 
<laughs> yes, a dog falls in love with the moorhen. There's a lot of stuff going on right now, so I'm trying to describe it in a way that makes the most no, sense. No, you're doing a great job. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the four main women. There's a governess. There's there's a there's a lady of the house that she falls in love with. There's a there's her sister, and there's a maid. And all of these women are given like what looks like quirks in the beginning, but it's actually them trying to like find some agency. Like the maid has two per- has like two personalities, and it's only and I feel like it's only because in these kind of literature, the servants are never given a voice; they're just people hidden in the background. So this, so the maid giving herself two different personalities was a way for her to kind of like make herself known. And then there's a sister who wants to be a writer, and she's kind of crazy, but. <laughs> You know what? Life is unfair. And, and as Beyonce says, what's worse, being jealous or crazy? I'd rather be crazy. So might as well. And I really, like, it didn't quite work for me sometimes. Like, there are some scenes with the maid and the governess, and they're just having the same conversations over and over again, and it kind of got a bit tedious sometimes. But there was this really wonderful quote in it, that like there's just these wonderful moments where Jen I feel like Jen Sullivan gets in, gets into like like kind of the essence of mod, of feminism and what women continually grapple with like there's a quote where the main sister Agatha where she says um, a, a woman desires results a girl desires approval and it's like yes it's it's in a very period trapping but at the same time like this play is is really like giving like making a very contemporary case for why women like some like a, a, a contemporary case for just like the struggles to of being a woman and and the struggle to make a connection and the struggle to have a voice in a society that kind of wants you to not say anything. So so th- that's that's my thoughts on it right now. But am I gonna be the person who loved everything in this episode? <laughs> Maybe, um, but it's okay. Okay, yeah, it's just strange because I'm usually like the cranky one. But anyway, I'm always um, the cranky one. It's fine. I loved this play so much and because like you deep when I was a teenager I became obsessed with all this Victorian novels and I I mean I thought I was freaking Jane Eyre when I was 15 I won't lie mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Uh, and Same. what I what I really loved about um, Jen Silverman's writing is that she she understands that all of these women at some point even though now we all love the, love those books and their classics and their celebrated. All of these women at some point had to write under pseudonyms or under male pen names. And what she does in the Moors is that she is fully aware that all of you know, all of these things they went through and what she has chosen to do is to celebrate their womanhood. It's like the the language is so rich. The characters i mean it's like the show works as a parody because it is i i don't think i've laughed so much at the theater in quite a while it also works as a very dark take on on not a dark take on feminism but a dark take on like deep was saying on all the fucking horrible things that men have done to women and they're still doing to women 
And also, she Jen shows that besides being great at writing comedy and writing more political kind of uh, theater, she also loved the romantic delusions, I guess, of all these novels. Because we all know that Kathy and Heathcliff are fucking lunatics, right? We, I mean, we know that. But we still want them to succeed and get together in Wuthering Heights. So I love the fact that she she understands this. So her romance in the play takes place between a bird and a dog, which is, I'm like, this is perfect. Like, what can be more insane than a bird and a dog falling in love? Oh, well, wait, uh, Kathy and Heathcliff. But anyway, so she knows this. And she she doesn't judge the form. She really celebrates it. She, she shows that she knows it so well that she can make the tragic delusional romance between a dog and a bird as soon worthy and as sigh inducing as anything that Charlotte and Emily Bronte wrote and I was mind blown by that also I love the set what did you think about the costumes I wanted costumes I think I told you right? that's why yeah, I asked yeah. I wanted co- like I love costumes and I wanted costumes and I thought they were they were, I thought they were perfect they were both very detailed and a little over the top because so, so they felt costumey enough that we knew that these were characters and that we knew for instance that even though because i've always thought it's so crazy i mean these people were living in the moors like no one comes to fucking visit them right who, who goes there but they're still abiding to this crazy costume rules that people in london had like none of there's a recurring joke because none of the women have been to london and mm-hmm. the governess that arrives just passed through London, but suddenly she's like the city girl because she, you know, passed through London on her way to the moors. So I, it's so crazy. I'm like, if I, well, when I work from home, I do not wear any clothes. So I'm like, if I lived in the moors, maybe I would have like a fur, you know, like a cute like fur, but I would not be wearing like the big like skirts and all of that. So I also love that, that it points out how ridiculous uh, fashion and societal rules have been for women and still are for women. So I have never been enamored with this era of literature. And Jose you just, just killed, killed over. Yeah, <laughs> you just killed him a little bit. I fell off a cliff. <laughs> and I actively rejected it as a youth. I was certainly assigned to read many books of this variety in school. And I did not. So my experience viewing this play was, I think, very different than both of yours and also very different from the majority of the audience. And so to the degree that it is a parody of or a commentary on the Victorian literature era, I only appreciated a sliver of that. And I think there are whole degrees to which it just passed me by and the audience was laughing and I wasn't, or they were laughing much harder than I was. But I can appreciate it for the excellent production. There are definitely many quotable lines. I was taking notes during the production and I wrote a few down that I thought were very funny. I thought there was a fantastic conclusion, but I don't think I was able to absorb and appreciate it as much as the two of you were. Anything to add on that one? Oh, yeah. And 
note, I did talk to Jen about this because I wrote an article f- about her for American Theater, but she also said one of the reasons she wrote this play was to give like queer women in, women in history a voice and some representation. And so I felt she was also very successful in that regard, too, with this play. So our next play is Sundown Yellow Moon, which is a co-production of Ars Nova and Women's Theater Project. It is a nighttime play. Query for you two, is that a term of art that I should know, or is that something made up by this production? It's made up. I was going to ask what that was. That's not a thing. Okay, so good to know because I had no idea what that meant and continue to have no idea what that means. Can someone tell us what it means out there, please? Um, (laughs) Maybe maybe it's a really obscure thing that I don't know because I don't don't have a theater degree. So this play mostly takes place at night, which I think is probably what that's a reference to, but why you had include that in your description i don't know anyway moving on it's a nighttime play <laughs> with songs by rachel bonds with music and lyrics by the bengsons who you may recall we covered a show of theirs at the under the radar festival during our festival conversations it is directed by ann kaufman and it has a fantastic cast that i'm going to run through really quickly a brony booth lily cooper peter friedman greg keller and nathan Michael Pemberton, and J.D. Taylor. I thought the cast was fantastic. Now, in terms of what this was about, I shall struggle to describe it because (laughs) there are many characters who have many qualities and characteristics. And by the end of the play, I think we have a list of characters with a list of qualities and characteristics and are just ready to get started on a journey and then the play is concluded. (laughs) Indeed, in the last, like, two minutes of this play, a major character shift happens, and I was like, what? This person has been set up as the kind of rock, the person who is, like, dependable and reliable and strong and organized, and now you're telling us she suffers from kind of mental illness? I was like, what are you talking about? I thought this play was very confusing. It was very slow, and the actors were great and the scenery was great the music was fantastic I wanted 1000% more music I just do not think this gelled as a story or collection of characters in any way what did you guys think well I think everything should be a musical so yes I co-sign on the (laughs) more songs thing I agree with uh yeah, it felt like a very long setup, and then it was over. And that was confusing. But I don't know. I enjoyed it. Uh, I did not love this one as much as I loved the other two that we talked about. But, uh, Ooh, yeah. controversial. I know, right? But, I mean, I didn't, like, dislike it either. I just wanted to, I just wanted to focus on how much I loved the scenes between um, Greg Keller and Ebony Booth, who he, she plays, like, a... The controlled good sister to Lily Cooper's like more like artsy, you know, like more hippie-ish, I guess, kind of sister. And they're twins as well, but that doesn't really matter for what for this purpose. Uh, anyway, so she goes swimming. She runs a lot. Basically, she's leading the kind of life that I wish I led, but I'm too lazy to go swimming every day. But anyway, she, she swims at night, and at night she ends up meeting in the forest 
the character played by Greg Keller. His name's Ted. And he's a professor because they live near a college or whatever. And he's a professor who's also a poet. And I love this. I love uh, Joey so much because she's so nerdy that she recognizes him as a poet. I mean, like, no one knows what poets look like, right? But anyway, she loved his poetry growing up. And they start this not affair per se, but kind of like a platonic affair. And they meet in the forest at night, which is very out of Shakespeare. They meet in the forest at night and they talk about poetry and music and life and where they want to go. And I wish that the whole play had been about their encounters in the forest because they were, they were what I wanted to know more about. Like they, I found the other storylines kind of tall, maybe. I would, I would guess that the, I don't know, maybe the characters, the playwright, like more were these two in the forest because the other ones felt like afterthoughts to me. I'm obviously just like guessing, so I don't know. Sorry, playwright, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Yeah, this is one of those times where I had heard a r really good things about this particular playwright, and I love Ars Nova, so I was really looking forward to this, and I heard really good things about the Bensons. And so... People, don't disappoint me. Why would you do that? <laughs> but uh, and I, I feel like we should also talk about like the setup of the play, which are these two twin girls uh, played by Lily Cooper and Ebony Booth. And, and also Lily Cooper was, was in The Wildness last year at Ars Nova, and she was amazing. And she's also amazing in this. I love her. She's so fantastic. Yeah. And gorgeous. Okay. Sorry. She's amazing, yeah. yeah. And so, and they come home to their ho to their hometown, and because their father just got s suspended from the, s the high school he he taught at, be teaches at because he you know back accidentally like slapped a a fellow teacher. So that's the setup, and I think I think what the play was trying to get at was like just the ang anxiety about the future and getting older and moving forward, but it really didn't say anything profound about it to really justify the 90-minute runtime, and it, it just kind of meandered into different directions that really had no... that didn't really bear fruit in any way. Like, all of these characters were given problems, and none of those problems were resolved. And in fact, we're actually left with more problems that at the end than when we started, but everyone just sings a song and they all feel better. I think. Also, what about those neighbors that showed up for one right? song? That was so weird. And I, that was like, I feel like that was a really expensive, like for the theater, because they have to pay for two more actors just to come into one scene. It's one of those times where you need, an, I feel like you needed another draft in order to really figure out like what, this play was about or what this play wanted to say. And also, I, I feel like there is something really interesting here about how these two, like, half-black girls has this white father, who's and they're all going through their all their issues, but there weren't very many scenes of, with about them as a family or even about the two girls as sisters. And they kept on hinting at something interesting that might ha that might happen or some kind of revelation within the f with the family and then they didn't do any of those things and so it just went nowhere which was very disappointing but 
I do agree. The music was great. Yeah, because they kept talking about the mother, right? And yeah. I, and I, and I, I mean, I, I had gone, I read the cast list, but I was expecting, it was like, oh, mother's coming. Ooh, mother's going to show up. Ooh, mother's going to call. And I was expecting this, like, I don't know, like, like amazing, majestic kind of, like, Felicia Rashad figure mm-hmm. to, like, come from the sky and, like... Just save this yeah. play. And, like, throw thunder at them and, like, beat those girls and beat the guy. Because the, the guy, the dad was... He was... He got on my nerves a lot. But I what didn't was, mind what him was, so much. What was up with Carver? I have no... Is Carver closeted? Is that why? Oh, yeah. So many elements of that story are so confusing. There's, I, like, a yeah. history of apparently child sex abuse with a priest. With a priest, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then he was also in the band, yeah. and, the, and he left the band because of the said sex abuse, and so now the band's successful and he's not. Like, there was, like, a little hint of something under there that it never got resolved. No. Like, I, I also wish that, uh, since you mentioned the band, and, and I thought it was really curious that both Joey and... Uh, Ray have obsessions with artists because you know Joey's obsessed with the poet, and mm-hmm. Ray seems to know all the songs that Carver's band had years ago. And, and I she's was a like, musician, yeah. I was like, huh, like what's up with this? There are definitely nuggets of a very interesting story here. I think the two sisters and that obsession you talked about are interesting or shared interest in art with the two men in the play like that could have been an interesting play the scene i really liked is when ray and carver sing a song together i was like oh what if the play was about this you know what if the play was about these two people who are struggling that love music and they find each other and then once the parallel story with the (laughs) other sister with joey and the greg keller character whose name is ted you know that i was like this could have been a very interesting like juxtaposing these two like not couples but a man and a woman and they are meeting and maybe Bonding. journey together to finding some like greater truth or pursuit of their inner passion or something. I was like, that, that would have been good. Or just like a family drama about like <laughs> everyone having anxiety about their lives. I mean, that's fine. There are a shitload of plays about that. And there, there could be more plays about that with biracial children. That, that could have been a good play. But this play was wanted to be a little bit of everything. It didn't succeed in being anything. Maybe a nighttime play is call that because we end up talking about it forever and all the way into the night while we drink. I was going to make a joke about it putting you to sleep, but <laughs> the gentleman next to me was uh, but then I said it anyway. And then the gentleman next to me was asleep the entire time. Did so. you like wake him? Was he snoring? No, but you know what? I do that sometimes when I want to get away but I can't actually get away from a, from a play. You snore? So. I don't know. I, I fall asleep. Oh, Sorry guys. Alright, let's move on. Jose. I'm going to pull out this, like, very... And I, I, I hope you both, like, roll your eyes at this. But I'm going to pull out this, like, insane segue from under my folded sleeve. Because I thought the next play that we're, that we're going to talk about is Villa by Guillermo Calderón at uh, The Wild Project. And I actually thought... And here come the eye rolls, I hope. I thought that Villa and the Light Years had... were talking about the same theme which is how we choose or we how we choose not to remember our pain and how we as humans are allowed to you know like figure out if we want to deal with trauma if we want to bury trauma if we want to build a monument to trauma which is i guess the threat line between the light years and villa in both cases happen to be 
structures. So in Villa, we have three women, all called Alejandra, although this is obviously not their real name. They are part of what I understood as a, a political group of people who were affected by Pinochet's dictatorship. And they are probably the daughters and granddaughters of people who were murdered and tortured and or who just disappeared during the dictatorship. And as part of a special committee of a larger political group that's obviously that was obviously anti-Pinochet, they have been chosen, they have given they're given the task of deciding what to do with the title villa, which was a villa, <laughs> where uh, Pinochet's soldiers and his army committed horrendous crimes, most of which are only suggested. We don't know specifically. We know some of them, and they're fucking horrible, so I, but, so I don't want to talk about it. Uh, but most of them are things... It's kind of like a haunted house. There are things where we understood that around every lurking around every corner in that villa was a, a horror more horrible than the previous one where women were murdered people were dismembered probably there were dogs doing stuff anyway so the three women have to vote and they have to decide whether they want to rebuild the villa as it was before pinochet scoop or if they want to turn the villa into a museum, remembering the dictatorship's horrors and what the villa had been like in times of happiness. So these three women argue in real time over the course of, well, as long as the play goes, about what they're going to do with this. And it was kind of like a real estate drama in a sense that you get a sense that, you know, like, what are those things called? Board things apartment things anyway like the board of like an apartment building trying to decide what to do with an apartment <laughs> but also it just happens that in this apartment fucking horrible crimes against humanity had happened so we see these women conspire against each other not in a spy thriller kind of way but more in uh they are so sheltered and they are so traumatized by things that i think they none of them were adults during the dictatorship, but they have inherited the pain and the suffering. And they are, even in contemporary times, because there's comments, there's mentions, excuse me, about uh, the Chilean female president, which means that the play is taking place after 2005. So they're talking about this pain that they got from their mothers and their grandmothers. Probably some of them don't even have their moms around anymore. So I, I found that very painful to watch. Uh, it was a very hard play to sit through because there were so many levels of these women just like doubting each other because society loves pitting women against each other. And also these women being afraid of revealing who they are because maybe one of them was a mole for the right and they were going to get arrested or killed or something worse. Or maybe, which is what I found the most painful thing of all, Maybe they were just being really paranoid. Maybe they were living in a period of peace, but they are so traumatized that they just, they're just going to be trapped forever in that villa that they actually never saw in real life. That was an amazing description of this play. Mm -hmm. Are you writing about this play? I just spoke about it. 
I know. I was just wondering if you're also. If I was you wondering should. if you were, if you, you were so articulate about the play because you had written about it. Like no. that was an amazing description of this play. Maybe I'll just transcribe it and just like. Write it. <laughs> you should review it. Oh, um, I, I feel like we should also mention that uh, Guillermo Calderon, like he's been presented at Under the Radar a few times, and most of his work deals with the Pinochet regime and the fallout from that. So there's some context for all of y'all's. Um, oh, and it's presented at, at the play company. Uh, for me, it was kind of like, it wasn't so much re realistic. It, it was kind of uh, Gatto-like, where the, these three women are basically having the same arguments over and over again. And I don't really think of them as actual real women. I feel like they're all like three facets of the same brain because they're all named Alejandra. And it, it's like, and I feel like they were a personification of just like our, like a nation recovering from trauma. And how do we address the trauma? Do we hide it and pretend it never happened? Do we honor it by recreating it down to the detail, down to the dogs? Or do we honor, like, honor it with, with beautiful buildings and monuments? And I think it's like it's not even a conversation just centered on Chile. I also it, it, I think it's a conversation for any nation that has like a very traumatic history and how do we deal with that history? And I feel like I could I was thinking about it and I and I was watching it and then I was thinking about this um, article I read in the Atlantic about how Germans deal with the Holocaust and how they don't hide the Holocaust they keep the monuments and they also acknowledge how like all all of the, like all of Germany's collective action within this and so everyone's implicated and and everyone carries a little bit of the guilt and a little bit of the trauma and that's okay and I feel like that contrasts heavily with how America deals with slavery and how we don't talk about it and how we just pretend it never happened or, or it no longer has any relevance to our lives today. And I feel like you can have, I feel like it's one of those arguments like you can have with, in a room with anyone you know about, how do we do it? How, how do we do this? And I, I don't really think the play gives you any answers. I have an opinion on how I think we should deal with these things, but I, I feel like it was a really fruitful, emotional, intellectual exercise ab about like the the past and the the past and and how we as humans should think about you know like the horrible shit that went down like before we were born. As Deep mentioned, this is a play company production, and as I have mentioned when we have discussed their productions in the past, I'm very good friends with the chair of their board, and I have discussed this play with him, so I want to disclose that I don't want to get fired from the podcast a la Isherwood, so. <laughs> I don't think you can fire yourself. Just saying. There could be a revolt from my conflicts of interest. So this play falls in a category for me that I call brilliant but painful. Sitting through the debate these three characters have on stage, I thought was somewhat excruciating. I have been involved in many similar decision-making processes, obviously not with the same level of trauma that is being debated here, but with very passionate political 
forces on all sides of the debate. And in addition to the types of philosophical questions that you two have raised, I actually think there's another couple of layers of philosophy being debated here. And one of the questions is voting democracy versus consensus building and unanimity. And when you are trying to engage in a consensus decision-making process, you just have to endure. You have to be patient and extremely deliberate and committed to allowing every person to have their full say and believing that through that process you will get to the quote-unquote right outcome. And enduring that process is something that I cannot do. (laughs) (laughs) I just want a decision to be made at the end of the day. Honestly, most of the times, I don't care what the decision is. So I was on board with every proposal made as long as they would agree to it and quit fighting. And at one point, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but at one point they do have a unanimous decision. All three of them agree And they're literally on the phone reporting up to the board that they've been appointed by to say, we've come to a decision. And one of the characters says, but what if we did this other thing in addition to that? And I wanted to let out a blood curdling scream. I wanted to leap to the stage and strangle that woman. I was so furious. I just... Every time my family decides to go where to go to dinner, my mom says, but also what about that other place? And I'm just like, no, Lindsay, a decision has been made. Stop doing that. Want to know what this reminded me of, too? What? I'm thinking of a word. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, electricity. (laughs) That's not the word. (laughs) That's a very good point, Deep. So I thought that this was brilliant and a very successful artistic exercise. A very... uh, Exercise makes it sound like diminishing it. I I thought it was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I thought the questions that the playwright was examining were like layers and layers of brilliance and depth and you know, we could have an entire podcast where we talk just about the history question. And I'm glad you brought up those points of contrast about, you know, we, we in this country also had a similar debate after nine 11. Do do we rebuild the twin towers or do we Mm -hmm, build something in its mm -hmm. place? And I remember at that time, a lot of people pointing to other countries that face more frequent acts of violence and how they react to that. And like, one thing that has always stuck in my mind for some reason is that in Israel, if something gets bombed, they proceed as quickly as possible to rebuilding it exactly. Mm. Um, And so, you know, there, there are these differences in how we deal with our history, but I think there are also these differences in how we deal with coming to a decision. And in these political times, it's very, those are very interesting questions to be examining. Right. Oh, and I also wanted to add one more thing. Like, they also, there's another layer just about, like, rape and how women in particular, like, recover from rape versus what society tells them that what that they should do. And so, like, that was, I, I, I could watch a whole play just about that mm-hmm. just because, like, they, they, Garrow makes it very clear. Women women respond differently from trauma to, to trauma, and society keeps on telling you there's this thing you have to do, otherwise you're not like a good rape victim. Mm-hmm. 
So there is that aspect as well that I just found really refreshing. I I really wanted to. I've seen Guillermo Calderón's plays both done in Spanish and in English, and I really wanted to commend William Gregory's translation because mm-hmm. I thought he really got the cadences, he got the rhythm, and everything. And there's something that, as a snarky Latino, I don't even think of as being snarky. I think I deserve to call things like this out. But usually, you know, it's the same thing when in in ancient movies, everyone has a British accent, right? So it's really strange when we see Anglo actors playing Latinos. And yeah, yeah, and but what I really liked and I really highly appreciate and thank more than anything, uh, the people behind this play was because they acknowledged that. They know that in 2017, whiteness is no longer universal. It never was, but it's not universal and it definitely isn't invisible. And at one point, one of the characters does call the other one out about her blondness. And she's like, why are you blonde? I am not sure if this was in the Spanish version, so I can't say if it's coming from that or not. But I really, when I when I heard them actually acknowledge, like, hey, you are you look like a German. You don't look like someone from Chile. Although, again, you know, like people can look all over. I mean, people can look all, all sorts of different ways, regardless of where they are. But they acknowledged that this particular actor and this character that she was playing looked very out of place with the other two. And I love that they brought that up because as a Latino, I felt that I could like and appreciate the play even more for acknowledging that. So thank you. Should we talk about what we have coming up next? Does anyone see my cell phone? I have no idea. I left my phone over there as well. Go get it. I will. <laughs> Are we going to edit this out? Yeah. Oh, I can, like, oh, right riff. Here. It's right here. All right. Who's starting? Uh, sure. Well, I'm only seeing one show. Actually, no, I'm seeing two. Uh, I lied. Uh, tomorrow, I am seeing... Uh, sorry, Monday, I'm seeing The Strangest, uh, which is... with it, It's an immersive theater piece based on an Israeli play, and Maya Dralis, who directed Viet Gone, is doing it. So I've never... I haven't actually seen much of her work outside of Vietnam, so I'm really interested to see how she she takes like well, how, how she takes like the, this mill like this piece with like Middle Eastern music and and style, yeah, and make 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 it immersive. That's going to be interesting. And then I am seeing the Price, the Arthur Miller revival at the Roundabout with Mark Ruffalo. Yay! <laughs> That's mainly why I'm going. So that's exciting. And then I have to give a speech next week. So that's all I'm seeing. Yeah. In theater-wise. That's pretty cool. Before going into what I'm seeing, I just really wanted to give a shout-out to this show that I loved and that I saw last weekend called Omega Kids, Mm -hmm. which is, I'm not even kidding, one of the most beautiful plays I have ever seen. It's a very, very tiny show. It closes on the 26th. And uh, I mean, as Lindsay has said before, like she likes going to the theater because they take you to places that you would never be otherwise. So this one puts you in. A, I don't even want to talk about it because it's so beautiful and like I feel like I'm gonna break it. But what I'm gonna say is, it's a show about queer people. It's an interracial romance. It's about comic books. Everything niche about niches, I guess. This play has. 
but it also like plays with everything in a way that uh, I came out like floating on a cloud and I wanted to like marry everyone and go buying comic books and like go to Comic Con and fall in love in Comic Con. And I don't even like superheroes. But anyway. I'm so surprised. Yeah. Yeah. But this show is like beautiful. So if you can, like go buy it. And I know that there's. They don't really have like a big budget for marketing. So, but please like seek it out. Like, I love it. Like, I'm willing to reimburse you if you don't like it. Oh, wow, uh, a guarantee. Because <laughs> it's really beautiful. Anyway, so. Oh, you I'm, recommend things on here? Oh, I have something. Okay. Of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah, come, back, come back to me and after you're done, Jose. Okay, so uh, I'm seeing like a bunch of Broadway stuff, uh, but I'm really excited about a show that I'm seeing at Abrams Art Center called The Terrifying, which is like. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that, too. Yeah. yeah. So I'm ready to be scared shitless because I don't think I've been scared shitless at a theater in a, maybe ever. So, uh, yep, that's the one that I want to talk about. So thank you for listening. Talk to you, Deep. Oh, yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, I, I actually wanted to recommend... Uh, it's running until March 19th, so hopefully if you can get in, it'll be good. Uh, you, I, I talk a lot about race on this podcast, well, generally in life. <laughs> and But I saw this play at Labyrinth called Dolphins and Sharks by James Anthony Taylor. And while it's not perfect, I think it, it opens itself up to some conversations I feel like we're never able to have because we're just so stuck in the black and white dichotomy of the racial conversation. And this, and this play talks very specifically about workers in a Harlem um, office max-like place, and, but, they're all, but they're black and Latino workers. And so it talks about colorism. It talks about interracial, you know, tensions between my among minorities, and it just talks, and it 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 addresses just like how when you're a minority and you're trying to like push up against like white leadership leadership and that ceiling, like it gets very frustrating. And so you t- start to like fight amongst your, yourselves, amongst the people with in your similar income bracket when you shouldn't be. And so I found, I found it like a very refreshing conversation because we don't get to have that conversation very often. So I recommend it. And yeah, it, it, it runs like for a couple more days. So see it and then get, get back to me on what you think. <laughs> Wonderful. I wanted to mention that one of our contributors, David Levy, has an annual event celebrating <laughs> the birth of Stephen Sondheim. It's called Sondheim Miss. And this year it is on March 20th. That's a Monday at Joe's Pub. Last I checked, there were a few tickets available, but they were going quickly. So if you are interested in that, do check it out. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that on the 24th and 25th that weekend is Culture Mart at Here Arts Center. And that is a brief festival that here does with their artists who are working on new work so it's kind of a almost like a festival of workshop Mm. performances and taylor mack has a show at culture mart this year as does zoe martinson um who is an artist that i think is wonderful and really adore so lots of good stuff coming up we will be back with an april preview i'm sorry we missed the preview this year or this month but we'll be back with that preview in april so we'll see you then thank you for listening and thank you two for joining today Bye. thanks Lindsay. 
Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen. Deep is at Deep Thought. And I am at Lindsay Behrens. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. We'll see you back here in April. Theatrical Media.